Hey, everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. I have some very special guests today. As you know, I'm hosting the GI Health Summit this week, which I could not have done without the help of Dr. Will B because he helped me get some of the world's leading experts on the summit like today's guest who is going to be talking about his new book. But when you have a big wig celebrity on, it's not enough for me to introduce it. You need another big wig celebrity. So let me introduce New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Will B, who will introduce today's guest. Thank you, Chef AJ. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here and to introduce someone who I admire so much. This is Dr. Douglas Strassman. And he's someone who it goes beyond um, calling him, you know, a great physician. This is someone who is a friend. He has been a mentor to me. He has inspired me in my own career. Uh, I wouldn't be the person that I am today if not for Dr. Strassman. And so it's a great honor for me to introduce him. Let me say that I could go on for literally 10 minutes talking about the accolades and the accomplishments. Dr. Drossman is a professor uh, emeritus at the University of North Carolina in both medicine and psychiatry, which is quite interesting and amazing. He uh, is the founder of the Rome Foundation, which is the foundation that helps us to understand complex digestive issues like irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, he founded the Rome Foundation and um, they have four books now, which basically are put into clinical practice on a daily basis that Dr. Drossman was the editor in chief of these books. You know, there are literally, I'm not being hyperbolic or exaggerating when I say that there are millions of people, millions of doctors around the planet on a daily basis who are practicing medicine based upon the research that Dr. Drossman did and put into practice. He is, he is literally one of the leading gastroenterologists on the planet, which makes it a great honor for him to be here with us today. But, you know, what I would rather say or touch upon is my uh, connection with him on a personal level. He trained me at the University of North Carolina and I worked in clinic with him. And what was incredible is that we would have people coming from literally around the planet to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, this small town. They would fly in to come see Dr. Drossman in this clinic. And these are people who had been told by their doctor that they had no chance, that they would never be better. They had lost hope. They had basically given up. And they would come to this clinic and they would work with us and with Dr. Drossman, Dr. Drossman as the leader. And... It would be incredible to see a person who would enter in with no hope and by the end of our encounter, which would take several hours, you could just see that they had a light in their eye and you could tell that they had hit rock bottom, but now they were bouncing back and this was the beginning. This was the beginning of a new phase in their life. And it was amazing to see our ability using the techniques that Dr. Drossman has taught to change the health of the people that other doctors had told them that they didn't know what to do, that there was no chance for recovery. And so, you know, I, I wanted to come here today just to say that, um, that I am very excited for you guys to hear what Dr. Drossman has to say. He is literally one of the world's leading gastroenterologists, but he also happens to be a great person. He has a lot of wisdom and he's inspired me in my own career. And so with that, I will turn it over to you, Chef AJ, and to Dr. Drossman to take it from here. 
That is so great. I feel like I'm hosting the Oscars and I just got Tom Cruise to introduce the, the, the best picture. Thank you so much, Dr. Will. Hang around if you like. I know you're very busy. And thank you so much for your help with the summit, for getting me these world experts. And, and you're right, Dr. Drosman, he, he was one of my favorite interviews. He was he was just a lot of fun and kind. And, I, and he sounds like Christopher Walken. Well, can't beat that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. And his, his new book, by the way, Gut Feelings, I've read myself. And it's a fantastic book. Anyone who's suffering with digestive issues needs to grab this book. Um, and I'm sure you guys will talk about it a little bit more. But I just wanted to throw that in there real quick. That is a great book. You guys would love it. Thank you. Well, please welcome to the show, Dr. Doug Drossman and Johanna Ruddy. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Well, thank you, Will. Uh, oh, don't go away yet. <laughs> I just want to praise you. You're Truly one of the, the most outstanding fellows I've ever worked with. And I think that's why we've made that connection. And it's great to see what you've achieved with your book and the way you've, you, you've, you've basically created your own entity. I admire that very much. So it was great to be working with you. And thanks for that very flattering uh, presentation. <laughs> I have no time left to give the talk. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, my pleasure. And I love that pillow that you have behind over your right shoulder there. That's wonderful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's my buddy. There we go. Uh, so this, this is a great segue because uh, what Will is talking about was not so much what I did. Yes, I'm a gastroenterologist and I have psychiatric training. But what I also communicated to Will and others is the, uh, is Will on the screen or am I on the screen? You're on the screen. Okay. Is, is the, the aspect of the patient-doctor relationship. And it takes two to tango. It's not something that I do for a patient. It's engaging with the patient in a way that we're working collaboratively. And that brings in Johanna because Johanna, who's also the executive director of the Rome Foundation, is a patient and is a co-author and we decided very early on to collaborate and do workshops to teach patients and doctors how to work together. So what I wanted to do today is to borrow the screen, tell you something about the book, and then demonstrate some aspects of the book by showing communication skills where patients can talk to their doctors better and where doctors learn better how to communicate with patients. And before I go on, Maybe Johanna, you want to say a few words uh, before we start? Well, sure. Thank you. So I second Will's glowing recommendations of Dr. Drossman. Um, I, I too experienced his medical expertise as a patient who had struggled for over a decade with my GI health. Um, and I'm happy to report now doing, doing quite well and managing my, my health in a much different manner. So Dr. Drossman and I met maybe three and a half years ago um, when I took a job at the Rome Foundation as their executive director. And um, I didn't really anticipate Dr. Drossman being my physician, didn't even ask him about that or, or really think that perhaps he would provide a different approach to patient care for me. I had had some very negative interactions with doctors over that decade and so, never really approached Dr. Drossman about um, my own health, just strictly professional working with him together in the Rome Foundation. 
Um, and so it wasn't until I had a flare up of my digestive condition that um, I did finally reach out at the urging of my husband and the rest is history. So Dr. Grossman and I have um, really worked together in a collaborative fashion, not just in managing my own health, but also um, in, in working together to teach doctors and patients how to work together for the benefit of both parties. As Dr. Drossman says, it takes two to tango. And that is very, very true. If, if the doctor is doing all of the work and the patient isn't a participant and a partner, then there's not gonna be good satisfaction on both sides and vice versa. So Dr. Drossman and I have developed a lot of programs to teach these um, skills to physicians as well as to patients, as my role has become more of a patient advocate and patient educator in these conditions, as well as communication skills. And then that brings us to the book, which we collaborated on writing. And um, it was such a joy to work with Dr. Drossman in this process. But in the book, you'll hear my side as a patient, you'll, you'll read my story and see some of the factors that affected my negative outcomes initially, and then how he and I worked together to change that and change those outcomes. So hopefully it will resonate with a lot of patients. I work with a lot of patients every day and listen to their stories and try to help them connect to doctors who can be partners with them in their care. I hope that once you read the book, you'll, you'll find the skills that you need to be a better partner with your doctor as well. So I'm happy to be here today with Chef AJ and Dr. Drossman and give the patient's perspective what patients need to know when they visit their doctors. Great, terrific. All right, let me share the screen. Um, and let's see, get it into... So we're going to not only talk about the book, but we're going to give you tips and techniques that you can do if you're a provider with your patients and if you're a patient with your, uh, with your physician. Uh, this is the book. Um, you can get it off that website or the Rome Foundation website. Uh, it will be actually in print December 21st, but pre-orders are available. And I'll take you through what, what is in the book and then we'll go into doing some demonstrations. So uh, these are notables in the field of gastroenterology. You may have already heard Lin Chang in the summit. Uh, Jan Tak is in Belgium. Uh, and then we have our own prefaces. And we have four parts. The first part is the conceptual understanding and what are these disorders? These used to be called functional GI disorders. We now call them disorders of gut-brain interaction. Then we'll tell you about the different disorders. Then we'll get into communication skills. And then we get into how does the doctor think about this? Or what he or she should be doing. And then we have even clinical services around the world, the top programs in the world and educational products and resources. So with part one, uh, this is understanding what we call the biopsychosocial model and brain gut interactions and patient-centered care. Uh, this is a different model than you have nothing wrong, go to another doctor or go see a psychiatrist, which is the pitfall when you don't understand these conditions. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about mind-body dualism. Uh, we'll talk about inadequate knowledge of the DGBIs and where the effective treatments are and why patients and doctors are so dissatisfied. Then we show why this model is an understanding. 
this is what the biopsychosocial model looks like. It's that there's a, the brain and the gut are talking to each other and you can have a lot of distress going on in your bowel and that will impact on what happens in your brain causing anxiety and depression. And conversely, you can have a bad experience, uh, emotional experience, and that will affect your gut. I think we all know this, but now we're showing the science of it. And that can be influenced by genetics, environmental factors can play a role as well. Part two is a listing of all the disorders of gut-brain interaction. And you've heard of these, functional heartburn, functional dyspepsia, nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, bloating. I mean, everybody has had these symptoms, but when it happens frequently enough, you have this DGBI. We even talk a lot about chronic abdominal pain. And what happens if you take too much narcotics, how your GI system is affected? Talk about the gallbladder, how you can have pain from gallbladder disease. You can even have pain in, when the gallbladder is gone in the bile duct. And then with each diagnosis, we go through in a way for patients, the definition, how it works, how the diagnosis is made, and the treatment. Part three gets into the not what you do, but how you do it. Why is the doctor-patient relationship failing right now? Lots of reasons for that. Not much time, reimbursement issues, stigma. And so this is really a, a problem that has to be corrected and that began with the concept of patient-centered care, which we discuss, which came from the Institute of Medicine about 20 years ago, that there was a gap in the way patients and doctors were communicating and a partnership had to be created. So we talk about, and we're gonna show you today, the communication skills that can optimize this relationship. Johanna's story, uh, what she went through, which you heard before, and how she used that as a tool to, to help others uh, in a really remarkable way. And then we give a key elements of uh, a tutorial about what the doctor should do and what the patient should do when they meet. Part four is what the doctor should be doing. How does he or she make a diagnosis? What are the treatment approaches? What do you think about? It's not just you have a diagnosis and you take a pill. You have to look at the symptom profile you have to look at the psychosocial features. How is it affecting, impacting their quality of life? And then how severe is it? You know, if I, if I were to see a college student who had some cramps and diarrhea from before an exam, maybe reassurance is all that's needed. But if they were 60 years old and have had 20 years of severe pain and they can't eat and they're losing weight, well, then that's more severe and that's going to require different treatments. So we take you through that and then we provide the tips for the doctor to improve communication. Some of the nice things about it is that we have links to um, a video. So every time we talk about a condition, there's a video where Johanna and I are demonstrating what the patient and the doctor are doing. We have scientific images. We even have cartoons. We have a glossary. We have the Rome diagnostic criteria, and we even have an international listing of treatment programs. A lot of programs don't really want to see or don't emphasize treatment of these conditions. And so we have them there for you as well as other educational products. So let's go into a little bit of a, a mini tutorial. 
why is there a problem right now? You may not realize it, but there's been a drop to about one fourth of the amount of time that doctors spend with patients in the last uh, 50, 50 or so years. What we think of as the art of medicine, it's disappeared. People are looking at computers. They're not looking and engaging with the person non-verbally. Uh, they're not, there's no satisfaction in the care. Patients complain, doctors feel rough, rushed. And sometimes people try to hide behind the technology. You know, I did have a resident tell me, why talk with and examine a patient when I can get a CT? Well, Johanna will tell you what it meant to have a physical examination done as opposed to just sitting there and being talked to. The other thing we learn is that what you find on x-ray is not doesn't correlate with symptoms that well. People can have uh, structural abnormalities like, like tumors, but they may have no symptoms. Conversely, people can have severe symptoms and everything is negative. The other problem is that more and more time is spent on certification and documentation. It's been said that only 40% of the time spent between doctor and patient is in face-to-face -face communication. The rest of it is working on the computer. And this is leading to dissatisfaction. So this is kind of what you see with the computer these days. The doctor will be in, type on the computer, update your chart. If he has time, he will ask you how you're feeling and take a look at your rash. You know, about uh, seven or eight years ago, I cataloged what patients said to me when they came in after they had been to many, many other doctors. And this is very telling of the impact it has. The, quest, the issue of not being believed, the feeling that there must be something wrong, but nobody really believes that there is. Is it real? One patient sat on the table and said, I want you to open me up and find out the problem. Then it gets into the issue of, well, if I'm having these symptoms and nobody's finding anything, maybe I'm crazy. And then is the sense of isolation. Nobody really knows what I'm going through. The feeling of having been changed by the chronicity of the illness. I'm not the person I used to be. Then you start to feel more isolated, alone. You feel you're a burden on your family. I've had many patients talk about how sad they feel burdening their family and then feeling a lack of control, even to the point of feeling like a failure and ashamed. This, uh, if, if any of you know what a word cloud is, it's where they take a, a document and they make the size of the, of the word, the frequency with which the word is said. So these patients were came out of a medical clinic, just coming, leaving the doctor, and they were asked to give two words to describe their two adjectives or two words to describe their doctor. And this is what came out. So what we're looking at is the larger the, the size, the larger the number of reports about the doctor, hurried, rushed, busy, unconcerned, even rude. Pretty remarkable. And I think the reason for this has to do with that we're making a distinction between what we see on x-ray and endoscopy, which we call the disease, it's verifiable, and what the patient experiences, the illness. That is, patients can have abdominal pain and nausea, and if nothing's found, that leads to that sense that the doctor may be diminishing the reality of what the patient is experiencing. 
And so disease becomes prominent. And we don't have time to talk about it today, but if you get the book or look at the video, you'll understand how that began about 350 years ago with Rene Descartes, which led to a different attitude toward reality of what you see and the unreality of what you don't see. Uh, one, uh, one writer named Elaine, Elaine Scarry talked about the body in pain. And she said, to, feel, to experience pain is, to, is reality. To hear about someone's pain raises doubt. And here's a study that was done uh, by Kurt Kroenke, who's a friend of ours. He's an internist, where he looked at the common symptoms that patients came to doctors with. And what's shown in orange or yellow is when something was found, when an organic diagnosis or structural diagnosis was found. And he followed them for a period of time. And what you can see is that only about 10% of these symptoms did they find a structure to explain it. So while doctors learn about disease, what patients experience are often illness without apparent disease. And that can lead to dissonance or difference between the way doctors and patients see it. So they try to look for answers. They do tests, lots of tests. And, uh, and this of course is hoping to find something at surgery. I guess you can guess where this cartoon came from. It's New Yorker from many years ago. And what we have here is a patient in the bed and the doctor, the internist, is saying the old body checks out. Let's see what Doc Atkins here makes of the old mind. So he has been evaluating the patient, doesn't find anything, and he turns it over to the psychiatrist. And he looks pretty happy about it, uh, giving the patient over. She looks somewhat surprised, look at her open eyes, and not very accepting. So we have this problem between illness and disease that uh, absence, absence of both is health. But when you have uh, a, a serious disease like HIV or cancer, you have rightful suffering when you have the illness. But when you have illness and there's no disease as shown down here, we call that functional or psychosomatic. And that's a, an inappropriate term because it discounts the reality of the patient's experience. Uh, Paul Valeri was a philosopher and a poet from the beginning of the 19th century. And he said, to see is to forget the name of the thing one sees. Now, you might think, what, what was it that he was talking about? He was talking about art. And if you go into a museum, what, what he was really saying is, don't use prior biases or interpretations from others. Look at every object for its own worth and experience it at the moment you see it rather than prejudging. Well, I'd like to make that analogy when you see a, when a doctor sees a patient, <coughs> for that matter, when a patient sees a doctor. Don't prejudge them. Let the relationship determine the reality of that experience. So why is communication making a difference? Well, we know that it improves diagnosis and decision-making. If the patients and doctors are communicating effectively, the doctor gets more valid information. It creates a collaboration based on trust. It allows uh, the doctor to not be fully responsible 
for the patient's care, but it's a shared responsibility. And the, the science about chronic illness says that when the patient does well, it's when the patient takes responsibility for the care and they'll collaborate with the doctor. And that's the whole basis for what we're talking about. Many doctors have what we call a hypertrophied sense of responsibility. They're the ones who call the shots. Well, if it doesn't work, then they're responsible to find the answers. And with chronic illness, that doesn't work. Patient and doctor have to be working together. It establishes meaningfulness. You know, there can be, you can enjoy doing something, but whether it's meaningful is another thing. And the joy of taking care of patients or having a good relation with a doctor is something that takes the effort of effective communication. It does save time because you have more efficient data and it provides patient benefits to both. So when we do an effective interview, we gather information, we provide education and reassurance, we establish a therapeutic relationship and we implement treatment. So it's not just getting the history. Let's talk a little bit about satisfaction. You know, among doctors, we talk about achieving satisfaction, you know what, for what? For the purpose of billing. HCAPS is a national process, a national guidelines for getting patient satisfaction relating to the efficiency of the staff, whether the room was clean, whether medications were given on time. But when you ask doctors what is satisfaction, it comes down to a few, only a few items that the doctor, the patient feels that they get satisfied when the doctor feel, when they feel the doctor is humane, when they dig into, not dig into, but they get into their psychosocial world, that they're interested not just of their symptoms, but how it's affecting their life and their family relationships. When they provide medical information that's needed, that is they provide what the patient is looking for, but too much information is considered a negative factor. And they also have to be seen as technically competent. Another part of good communication is engagement. And that's really nonverbal. Here we're looking at good engagement. You can just see that the two of them are engaged. The, they're leaning forward. Uh, and what you don't see is there's good eye contact. You see that there's affirmative nods and gestures, which is really, if this were a video, you would see that and a close interpersonal distance. Engagement, this really began uh, looking at the research in the 70s at singles bars when they went in New York City and they tried to assess when were people connecting and when weren't, when they weren't. Well, this would be an example of when they were connecting and most of it is nonverbal. And then the important thing is it's a two-way street. So if patients are satisfied, then doctors are satisfied. And in fact, when patients are not satisfied, that creates the kind of dissonance where doctors feel frustrated and become more rushed. So let me take you through some tips and techniques uh, for the doctor and for the patient as well to be available uh, to, to, to know as well. Listening actively, we all think we listen actively to other people, but most of the time when we're engaging with something, a lot of times we're preoccupied with something else. Uh, we're, we're sitting at a cocktail party, one's talking about their family, the other's talking about their family, and one person might drift off and start to wonder what's for dinner. And so listening actively is listening enough 
that you make your response to the next person based on what they say. Doctors need to understand the patient's agenda, and this doesn't always come up. Patients may not be asking about cancer because they're afraid to ask about it, or they're worried they might have it, and they don't want to hear it. So doctors have to be able to elicit that by asking simple questions like, what worries and concerns do you have? Why are you here today? There may be a reason if you have chronic illness, why you're coming today. Is it an insurance form? Is the pain more severe? Or is it the anniversary of the death of a parent who had the same symptoms? We have to talk about empathy. Empathy is a way of creating a bridge with a patient. Empathy is experiencing what it's like and maintaining an objective stance. So this is, I can see how difficult it has been to manage with your pain. If you're a patient and you're talking about your symptoms and the doctor says this to you, you get a very different experience than if it's not said. So empathy is seeing the world as others see it, being non-judgmental, understanding another's feelings, and communicating that understanding. Validation is a way of letting the patient know you agree, you understand what they're going through. I can see you are frustrated when people say this is due to stress and you know it's real. Setting realistic goals if a patient is looking to be cured. The doctor needs to say, well, you've had this for 20 years. Let's work more on getting you back to work and giving you some degree of symptom relief. Education is not just providing a brochure, but interacting with the patient and the patient asks their questions and the doc doctor provides further information. Reassurance. Again, is not a pat on the back. It's not a. It's not just saying everything is fine. In fact, one of the negative things we see in our communication workshops is when the patient comes in, they tell their history, and they say, "Doctor, I'm worried about this," and the doctor says, "Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You have nothing to worry about," and that's before they've done a history and physical examination or done the proper tests. So reassurance has to come after the doctor has done the, pro the proper evaluation to be able to provide that for in a realistic manner. Negotiation means that the doctor doesn't tell the patient what to take, but he or she provides this medication that has this side effect, this benefit, this medication that has this side effect, this benefit, what would you like to choose? And by doing that and creating that collaboration, then three months from now, if the patient's not doing better, the patient doesn't say, I'm not better, what are you gonna do? The patient, the doctor can say, things aren't going well, we talked about some options, what should we do next? It's very different from the doctor saying, take this and what should we do next? In involving the patient in making the choices. And then finally, sometimes we don't know when the patient comes in, what's gonna come up. Uh, I think Will will recall one or two times where we had no idea when we came in the kinds of things that came up with the patient, a major loss or early trauma that they didn't even think they were going to be talking about, but it was so relevant to the illness. And that's a pathway toward improvement. 
nonverbal communication. You can see, you know, you can turn you can turn the sound off a movie and learn a lot about the communication. Look at the ineffective and the effective. This doctor is almost pushing the patient away, creating a barrier, not even looking at her. His feet are pointing outwards like he's about to walk away. She, in return, has crossed arms and crossed legs, which could mean she's cold, but it also could mean she's really not accepting what's going on and her head is down and she's looking a bit saddened by it. Here, we have the doctor pensively looking at the, at the patient. The, 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 the finger on the chin is thinking and he's, he's looking right at her. He's facing her forward and she is actively engaged. So here's how communication can play a role too. And I'm gonna skip this for the sake of time. So two items that the doctor and the patient should expect is one is, have I answered all your questions at the end? And regardless of how things go, we will continue to work on this together. Now, why is this so important? Well, the first one is that patients who are dissatisfied there's multiple studies to show that patients who are not satisfied with their clinical visit say so because their needs and their questions weren't addressed. They came away with only partial answers. So this is a way to accomplish that. The other thing is patients with illness, particularly if it's chronic, don't want to be abandoned with their symptoms. They don't want to be dismissed. And that's a common theme that comes up with patients who are dissatisfied. And so saying, regardless of how things go, we will continue to work on this together means if you get better or if you don't get better, we'll keep working on it. What I wanna do now is to show you a two or three minute video. And we're gonna to try to take a look at this, <coughs> maybe take some notes of what you see, what's not working here in this visit. And then we'll talk about it. Well, when I came back from vacation, I got a flare-up of whatever it is I have, nausea, diarrhea, um, fatigue, and um, stomach pain. So Dr. Jones said I should continue. Was this something like you've had before? Well, yes, but it's never been this bad. Is it made worse by food? No. Well, maybe, but I, I don't eat much when it gets bad. Do you think it's something I ate? Um, I, I don't know yet. Did you have diarrhea or fever? I think so, but I didn't take my temperature. So you have diarrhea and fever? Um, no, I get constipation too. But that's normally when I'm not eating well. And um, I, I know some diets could help, but uh, and it's important to eat regular meals, right? I do know that if I eat fatty foods, I I get pain and I feel queasy right right in here. Doctor, I'm really worried about this. I'm sorry, I'm not quite following. What type of bowel problems did you say you were having? Normally I get constipation, but when it's really bad, I have diarrhea too. This is not going too well. Can you see some reasons why? Okay. Okay, I want to do a physical exam, and then maybe we can talk more about the plans. Would that be okay? 
Well, everything seems okay. Um, what I'd like to do is a blood test for celiac disease, mm -hmm. and then I'd also like to do a colonoscopy. Now, it'll probably be okay. Uh, this way, we'll be sure there's really nothing to worry about. So, so don't worry. Doctor, what is it that I have? You know, I've been reading online about um, patients and, that have the same symptoms that I do, and they call it irritable bowel syndrome. Is that what I have? Perhaps, but I think we first need to rule out anything organic. What's organic? I mean, something specific that we can treat. If the studies are negative, then what I'd like to do is put you on an antidepressant, and that will make you feel more comfortable with your symptoms. Doctor, I'm not depressed. I just can't deal with this pain. No, I'm sorry, I didn't say you were depressed. These medications can help your symptoms. Look, let's just see what the tests show, and then we can take it from there, okay? If you were the patient, how would you experience that? What I want to do now is articulate what happened here that made this so ineffective. Well, first of all, the body language. There was no introduction, poor eye contact. He was faced away from patient on the computer. Second, the doctor really wasn't listening. Uh, he asked multiple choice questions. He seemed brushed. He cut into the patient frequently. Um, the education was ineffective. He didn't summarize what he found. He didn't even make a diagnosis and he had the false reassurances. And he delegitimized this as a diagnosis. He focused on identifying organic disorders, which again puts it into the category. If we don't find anything, then it must be in your head. And then he didn't explain why he was using antidepressants. It was being used for pain, not for psychiatric and there was no commitment for ongoing care, all the things we talked about. All right, let's look at the same one in just about the same amount of time, but done a little bit differently. Hi, Ms. Simpson. Hi. I'm Dr. Drosslin. How can I help you? Well, I came back from vacation, and I got a flare-up of whatever it is I have. Stomach pain, nausea, diarrhea, fatigue. I, I just got this new promotion at work to floor supervisor, and then all this happened. It started with the muscle ache and fatigue, and then I started getting queasy and, and having pain. It was worse after I ate. It was kind of like a summer virus. You know, I felt warm. I didn't take my temperature, so I don't know, but it was just definitely getting worse. I went to see Dr. Jones and I asked him what he could do to help me and he thought I should come see you. Tell me more about the symptoms, like what makes it better or worse? Well, it's definitely better after a bowel movement and it's worse after I eat or when I'm upset. I'm really starting to worry about this. I see. I don't feel like I can go work out and or go out to eat. And I just got this job, and I'm just worried. What, what if I can't do it? And at home, I just don't feel like I'm doing a good job there either. My um, my kids are great. You know, they have balance and all, but I just don't know. I can really see how this is affecting your life. Sometimes I feel like no one understands. It's got to be hard when people don't really understand what you're going through. So what do you think is going on? I don't know. 
I had been reading on the internet, and it seems that there are other people that have these same symptoms, and they call it irritable bowel syndrome. Yes, irritable bowel is a possibility, and if that's what you have, I want to make sure you get the right information. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of research going on now to help find better ways to treat that condition. So these are one of the things we'd be thinking about. We want to try to do some other tests, and then we can take it from there. Okay. Well, this has certainly been helpful. So uh, what I'd like to do uh, is why don't you get into a gown, and we're going to go ahead and do a physical exam, and then we'll come back and take it from there. Well, you know, I can see that you've had two extensive medical evaluations, and between that, the fact that your symptoms haven't changed any, and from our medical evaluation, I do believe you have irritable bowel syndrome. So I think I'd like to work more on managing your symptoms rather than doing other tests that may not be necessary. So what do we do? Well, there is no magic pill. I think you know that. Uh, but we can work on this. Um, I can see that these symptoms have had more effects than just the pain. It's affected your quality of life, your relationships with others. So while we're working on your symptoms, I'd like to have Dr. Johnson, who's a colleague of mine, a psychologist, who would help you develop coping strategies to help you get back to a more normal lifestyle. But you'll still see me too, right? Oh, yes, of course. Dr. Johnson will be part of our healthcare team and we'll be focusing more on the medical management. Uh, and in that regard, you've been on a lot of medicines that haven't been very effective. I'm thinking we might want to get something that might work a little bit better for you. It's a type of antidepressant that helps with pain. Do you think I'm depressed? What are your thoughts about that? Well, maybe because of the symptoms. Well, you know, medications have different effects. Aspirin, for example, can be used to treat pain, but it also can prevent a heart attack. And just like that, um, the antidepressants, in addition to treating depression, can actually act as pain modulators. They can block pain signals going from the gut to the brain, and in blocking the pain, it can raise your pain threshold. That's in addition to, if you are having any uh, depressive symptoms, we could help that as well. But whatever we decide, we'll be working together on this to modulate your symptoms and getting you to a better place. Okay, well, I'll give it a try. Thanks, Dr. So, did it feel different? Think about the two interviews. How did it feel to you? Well, here's why it felt different. The body language was more facilitative. You no notice, shook her hand immediately open posture, face the patient, good eye contact, affirmative nods, all the things we talked about with engagement. The interview was facilitative. She had the ability to tell her story without interruption. How many times have you experienced interruptions? The doctor was actively listening and he expressed empathy and validation. That's what we demonstrated before. Education was a dialogue. The IVS was affirmed as a, as a diagnosis. The rationale for using these medications and the psychologist was provided that was targeted to the problem, not because it was a psychiatric disorder. And lastly, the doctor was committed in the work. And then if we summarize what it takes to make it work, give the diagnosis, 
find out the patient's understanding and respond, encourage collaboration, set up mutually agreed upon goals, and as Carl Rogers said, provide positive regard and empathy and engage with the patient to achieve satisfaction. So that's the, an example of what we're telling the doctors and what patients need to understand. What I'd like to do now is turn it over to Johanna, who's gonna give her perspective on what should patients know? What was it like from her side of the story and when we talked about this? Great, thank you, Dr. Drossman, for that great presentation. So what should patients know about managing their chronic illness? Um, but let's just first look at um, an overall view of how patients with IBS view their, their chronic illness. So two studies were done over the past couple of years, um, both international, one um, looking at almost 2000 patients with IBS who were asked about their quality of life and um, stigma with their disorder. And they all indicated that they would be willing to give up 15 years of their life just to live symptom free, which is astounding. Um, another study showing 14% of IBS patients admitting that they would risk a one in thousand chance of death if it meant living a symptom-free life. Again, it shows the burden of these illnesses um, and how impactful they are on patients' quality of life. Now, we heard a little bit from Dr. Drossman about Descartes and um, Gosh, we're dealing, we're still dealing with the ramifications of that guy. Um, but stigma was a big reason, uh, a big ramification of Descartes. And stigma is a very old concept. Um, stigmata, it's experienced in multiple ways. Um, but for patients with chronic illnesses, such as DGBIs, um, illnesses that have no found organic cause, stigma can be a very big problem. So there's two types of stigma that patients can feel. They can have internal stigma. So that's something that's inside of, of, of their brains when they're thinking about their illness. They're feeling shame because they feel like they can't control their symptoms and they're embarrassed. They don't want to go out. They feel like everyone is judging them. Even if they do go out and they walk by the tables at a restaurant to get to the restroom, they feel like everyone's looking at them. And so that internalized stigma is something that's very real to them. Then there's external stigma, which is the stigma that they're experiencing from external sources, whether it's family, friends, sometimes <coughs> physicians who tell them either verbally or non-verbally that they don't believe their symptoms are legitimate, real, or as debilitating as the patient might be um, expressing. So they tend to just keep their mouth closed. They don't talk about their symptoms. They don't tell their friends and family about their diagnosis, and they just suffer in silence. Now, this can be very, very isolating. Stigma drives isolation and the more isolated patients can become, um, the more anxiety and depression can sit in and all of those um, issues can exacerbate their symptoms because of that brain gut axis. So if you're feeling extra anxiety and extra depression about your illness, you're going to have even worse symptoms, which is not something that patients need at this point, right? So we go to the next slide. We want to look at what do patients need from their doctors. So patients with DGBIs, um, what are they looking for when they see their doctor? 
Dr. Drossen does a great job with this. You heard in the video present um, example there with that patient. We want to hear a clear diagnosis and we want the doctor to use very concise language. There's a study, a Lyndale study that Dr. Drossman um, skipped over today for the sake of time, but it shows how patients were told about their diagnosis. If the doctor gave very clear diagnosis with concise language, they were more likely to, um, to buy into that, to understand it and to move on and not request further testing or find another doctor to give them another diagnosis. So it's very important for patients to feel like the doctor has given them a legitimate, concise diagnosis that they understand. They also wanna be heard and they wanna be understood. That's something that many patients feel in this age of being rushed through a clinic visit that they don't get the benefit of. So doctors utilizing these communication skills um, can really take the time to listen and to understand their patients as they're taking that history. Patients also want education about their condition. You know, a lot of patients end up looking on Google and trying to find resources that match their symptoms. Maybe it's this that I have, maybe it's that. And that can be beneficial if they find the right sources that are scientifically based and not pseudoscience or misinformation. But ultimately patients want their doctor to give them education about their condition. Once a diagnosis has been given, what is it that's going on inside of my body? What's the pathophysiology that's causing this condition and what can we do about it? That's followed by the care team initiating follow-up care. So don't leave it to the patients to make the next appointment. The doctor really needs to facilitate and initiate that follow-up. Additionally, patients don't want to be abandoned as Dr. Drossman mentioned. Chronic illnesses is something that can be very debilitating. It can be very isolating. And so to have a, a doctor who is their partner is very important. And honestly, once you've established a good working relationship with a doctor, you certainly don't wanna have to start all over again. That can be a, an added burden right there. So we really want to be to uh, have that partnership continue long-term. Now, how can patients improve their own care? We know that it's a two-way street. Both the doctor and the patient need to be working together in tandem for this relationship to work. And patients do have a responsibility in managing their own care as well. It can't only be left up to the doctor. So patients, when you're seeing your doctor, it's all about communication. You need to be honest with your doctor about your symptoms. Don't be embarrassed or shy. There's really nothing that the doctor hasn't heard. And honestly, being honest about your symptoms, even those embarrassing ones, is gonna help your doctor make a more accurate diagnosis. Also, you need to let your doctor know about how your symptoms are impacting your life, your work, your relationships, your hobbies. Um, all of those things are, are your quality of life and that matters. So if your symptoms are interfering with your ability to do your job, if you're taking a lot of time off from work because of your symptoms, if it's affecting your relationships, even your um, romantic relationships, many patients feel that they can't be intimate with their partners because their symptoms are so severe. Your doctor needs to know about that. That may affect the treatment that you and your doctor decide to start with first. 
Also, I always encourage patients to bring a symptom journal. And before you get there, really look for any sort of trends like diet or external stressors that might've been a trigger on a bad flare up day. And then maybe circle those or highlight those. Obviously the doctor's not gonna have enough time to go through page after page of your symptom journal from several weeks. But if you're highlighting some trends that you might've identified, those will be the key things your doctor can focus in on. Sometimes it's also good to bring along a friend or a family member if you need a little bit of emotional support. But I really emphasize to patients to not rely on your friend or your family member to do the talking for you. They're just there as a support. You're the one, you're the patient, you're the one who needs to be communicating about your symptoms. You also want to set expectations. We know chronic illness is just that. It's chronic. It's not going to go away overnight. There is no magic wand. It's going to take time to find treatments that are going to work well for you. So manage your expectations when you go to see your doctor. It's, it's small incremental steps to getting back to management and, and health. You also want to be honest about any concerns you might have regarding the treatment. So that's why it's so important to be a partner with your doctor. If your doctor is recommending a treatment that you're not clear on, ask questions. If you're not, um, if you're uneasy about it or you don't feel good about that treatment plan, then you need to say something right then and there because agreeing to a treatment plan then leaving, going home and not adhering to that treatment plan is not going to do anyone any good. So really be honest about your treatment plan. And then know your rights as a patient. Patients have rights. We have rights to be treated with dignity, to be treated with respect, to be understood. And really, I encourage you to listen to your gut. If you're seeing a doctor for the first time and you're feeling like, they're dismissive, they're not listening, they are, they are um, furthering your, the, the isolation or the stigma that you're feeling, then maybe that's not the right partner for you. And so it is okay to seek a second opinion and find a physician who can truly be your partner in this process because it's a long process. You want someone who you really trust and you feel good about working with. Finally, if we move past the illness and we look at regaining control of your health, I promise you it is possible, even for the most severe cases. I encourage patients to claim small victories. So while you may not be able to um, go on a girl's weekend to Mexico because your symptoms are too severe, that's okay. Were you able to go out and have a glass of wine with a good friend and feel good? that's a small victory. So don't be um, so concerned about not regaining full control right away. You're just gonna claim those small victories and work towards bigger and better. Also talk about your feelings um, with a professional if you need to. Um, there's no shame in doing that. There are actually GI health psychologists who work only with GI patients and they really focus on symptom management and the depression and anxiety that might be driving those symptoms. They're not gonna ask you about your, your mom or your childhood. You're only focusing on your illness and that can be very, very helpful utilizing things like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, breathing techniques, those sorts of things. And I really encourage you to seek that out if you think that would be helpful. 
Also, it's important, as I mentioned, to not deviate upon that agreed upon treatment plan without talking with your doctor. Your doctor's gonna assume when you leave his or her office that you're gonna be adhering to that plan that you both agreed upon together. So if something changes, be sure to call them and let them know. Finally, the last two points is just to really find joy and gratitude. There's always something to be grateful for. And honestly, the more we practice gratitude, the more our brains kind of shift in the way we see the world. Many times with a chronic illness, it can be really difficult to find good in anything. But when we are very intentional about shifting our mindset and finding gratitude in those small victories can change our whole perspective which can then improve our health. And finally, I just encourage patients to be hopeful and not hopeless. Chronic illness can seem very hopeless many times. And I promise that with proper management, you can move into a more um, normal lifestyle and find that hope and joy again. So those key points in with working with your doctor as a partner should really help to move you into a, a better place in your illness and in your health management. Well, thanks, Johanna. That was a great perspective that uh, obviously complements the way the patient and the doctor should work. The last slide is, can we change this? And I think this gets into the issue of, we need to educate people to address this and this is an effort that Rome Foundation, we are trying to do to educate physicians how to work together with patients and also to provide workshops to help patients as well. We need more research. Uh, we need to show that this makes a difference, that it not only leads to patient satisfaction, but it leads to greater adherence to treatment. It leads to improved clinical outcomes it reduced to reduction in procedures, and it, re, it, it improves healthcare costs. The problem now that we're faced with is that when the, the, the system is broken, more and more studies are being done that are unnecessary and healthcare costs skyrocket. But when patients and doctors are satisfied and improving, you don't need all those studies. And um, then we need to find a way to incentivize the providers through third-party payers and others so that they can continue to do what they're doing. You may not know, but I mean, as a gastroenterologist, I could make four times as much money doing colonoscopies in an hour than seeing a patient for an hour. So with that, we'll stop and I'll stop share of the screen. And AJ, we're ready for you. Hi, well, this was wonderful. So there's a question from a live viewer. Any tips on for changing a treatment plan when a doctor tries to guilt you into taking a certain pill or doing a certain procedure? Uh, run that by me one more time. Any tips for changing the treatment plan when a doctor tries to guilt you into taking a certain pill or doing a certain procedure? It, it should never get to that point. No. If the doctor's trying to guilt you, then the doctor's trying to assert his or her view and the patient has not responded with accepting it. I mean, just the fact of saying that means the patient's dissatisfied. So we have to get to the point of making the decision together on the treatment options so that both yeah. agree. 
Johanna, yeah, you want to Absolutely. Respond? I was just going to say, clearly they're not partners. Um, if they were, it would have been a shared decision-making process and there would be no guilt involved. So from a patient's perspective, if you're feeling uneasy and feeling like you're being pushed into something you're, un you're uncomfortable with, find a new, a new doctor. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes it's hard, like depending on where you live, like, you know, at least like sure. where specialists are concerned, you know, or, or depending on a person's insurance, but it is well, hard because there's something about like the guy in the white coat. It's like, we just, it's hard to sometimes speak up well, to them. That, let me say a little bit more about that. that that's where the pay, as Johanna pointed out, patients have a right to state their views. And this would be a situation where the patient could say, I'm not sure I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Are there other options? I'm going to give you some examples of what could be said. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable doing that medication. Just try to return the dialogue back to the doctor where you're expressing your view. And then hopefully the doctor will hear that and make some adjustments. Yeah, nice. I totally agree with that. I think you need to be your own advocate. And I, I know that can be really challenging sometimes, particularly when you're seeing the doctor in a position of authority and expertise, which they are the expert in that particular situation. But this is your health and you need to advocate for yourself and, and really um, ask questions and, and let the doctor know how you're feeling about these recommendations. Great. This is a great question from Amanda. And we, we're talking about this. And if you guys aren't registered for the GI Health Summit, you still have a chance to see Dr. Drossman's interview that was today. And it's wonderful. And I'll provide the link. But Amanda says, how do you get a team of doctors to work together on your symptoms? Gastroenterologists, gynecologists, psychologists, dietitian, etc. I know at UCLA, they have a multidisciplinary team where you just see a bunch of different specialists. But in general, what do you do? Well, I have to give my perspective. I mean, when I was at UNC, we did have teams uh, that could handle, that can, we have conferences, case conferences where each of the disciplines would discuss the patient and come to a unified view. What I do now, because I'm in private practice, is I just pick up the phone and I call the other provider and get into a dialogue. And sometimes I've set up a conference call. Now, it may be hard to do that, but that's the way it works for me. Uh, from the standpoint of the patient, I would recommend, I would ask them to say, would you be willing to give my doctor, or my other doctor a call and talk with them about it? So you may have to initiate that. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the older I get, the younger my doctors get. And I, I can still remember being five years old, having the doctor come and do house calls. And now, like you say, they, they barely look at you or touch you. They're literally on their computer the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, since, since you are a GI expert, if you don't mind, Dr. Drossman, we have somebody that wrote in with a question. They saw your summit interview, and this actually was not covered, I don't think, by any of the 40 experts we had in the summit, but it's a lady, 77 years young, who's had stress levels through the roof most of her life, suffered from chronic constipation since she was young, taken laxatives all her life, now trying to wean herself off. After the colonoscopy, it was suggested to her that because of taking so many laxatives, she has damaged her nerves. Her doctor recommended Linzess as it's thought it might help reawaken the nerves. Is that true? What are the side effects and how would one have to take it? Yeah, that's a complicated question because it brings in uh, a <laughs> lot of factors. Uh, one of the views has been that stimulant laxatives like Senna and Cascara and Aloe 
might be causing damage to the nerves and making the, the bowel lazy. That hasn't been proven too much these days. And although I don't use those treatments except for an occasional case, much of the time I would go with the more established scientifically proven drugs like Linzess. These are called secretocogs or, or lucanotide, Trulance or Amatiza. What they do is they put, put liquid into the bowel and then the stretch, putting the liquid in stretches the bowel and stimulates the bowel to push forward. So there's, there's a whole host of medications, uh, prokinetics we call that stimulate the bowel, secretagogues that put fluid in. And it is worth going to a gastroenterologist and finding out about those treatments. Now there is, in some cases, as people get older and if they're taking a lot of, have a lot of constipation, the bowel could get more sluggish. And then you have to use more and more treatments to kind of keep the bowel empty. And in rare, rare, rare cases, one out of 20,000 people with constipation, sometimes you take the colon out. That's not a terrible thing because these days, it doesn't mean wearing an ostomy. It means they can hook it up, the small bowel to the rectum. We call that an ileoproctoscopy and they can still have regular bowel movement. So it might be a little bit looser, but it takes care of the constipation. So there's always an option. Wait, that doesn't sound like such a great thing though, having your colon removed. Well, again, most people fear the ostomy, uh, but this, in this case, it's removed for their health for health reasons. Wow. April says, can you please address headaches in relation to leaky gut and food sensitivities? Okay, well, that's, that's, that's getting into uh, what we call functional medicine where there are certain methods <coughs> that homeopathic doctors talk about. I'm gonna speak from my perspective that, that leaky gut is what we see with these disorders of gut-brain interaction when they get pain and diarrhea and things like that. And that's because the bowel has a, a way of creating a barrier between what's in your intestine because there are toxins and there's bacteria in your intestine. And when the barrier gets broken, we can call that leaky gut and the, the bacterial products can leak through and go into the bowel and then cause the pain and diarrhea that we have. So that's the leaky gut and there are methods to treat that. Sometimes we use antibiotics called like rifaximin. Sometimes we use probiotics. Sometimes dietary measures can play a role. So we're talking about methods to treat the bowel that maintain the integrity of the bowel. Now, I mean, I don't know about headaches. I know that people who have bowel problems, a good proportion also have headaches. So maybe we're, that's what she meant by that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's see, where did this question? Uh, Debbie wants to know if you can address microscopic colitis. So in, in, in women or men who are getting more like 40, 50, 60, they can get, it's more common to get microscopic colitis. And what that is, is it's not ulcerative colitis and it's not Crohn's disease. It's a condition where you have mostly diarrhea, maybe not even without pain. And it's very important for doc gastroenterologists when someone who's middle-aged or older who has diarrhea to do a colonoscopy, but to do a biopsy because the colon looks normal. It's only from the biopsy you see it. 
And when you have microscopic colitis, there are special treatments that can be used for that. Uh, for example, non-absorbable uh, steroid medications can be used to reduce that. Nice, thank you. I, I, I think that might be it for all the questions. So will your book be available on Amazon eventually? Yes, Johanna, you wanna to respond to it, how we can access it? Sure, so right now we're doing pre-sales um, via the website that Dr. Drossman mentioned, um, also on the RomeFoundation.org website. Uh, and then beginning December 21st, uh, it will be available via Amazon as well as the Rome Foundation site. Amazon will have the ebook version as well as the print version. So you can choose which one you like. Some people like the Kindle version better. Um, I would encourage you um, to, to look at the website though, because we have some great um, testimonials, I guess. Dr. B, who was just joining us earlier, read the book and wrote a, a really nice um, recommendation on his thoughts on the book, um, as well as some other physicians and patients who have all read it as well. Um, so it gives you a good overview of what the book is about and, and um, what to expect when you finally get it. Don't, don't you guys have some videos on your website as well? Yeah, we do. So the, you know, Dr. Drossman mentioned that the book has video links after each section and you can see some of those as well as a promo video for the book on the website too. And also our center, uh, Drossman Care, the Drossman Center, drossmancare.com. Uh, you can purchase the book and look at some videos and the, and the gastroenterology practice is there as well. Yeah, and then on, on the Rome Foundation website, um, theromefoundation.org, if you go to resources and then patient Q&A, we have an entire library of videos that Dr. Drossman and I have made over the years, um, talking about all of these different conditions, treatments, diagnoses, um, just a whole host. We must have 80 different videos at this point. Um, but they're all made for patients to really give you an idea about these conditions and how you would be diagnosed or treat, how you would treat them. So I would encourage you to go there. Dr. Drossman's showing you on the screen. And these are all the different topics. We talk about gender and the role of hormones in IBS, particularly important for women um, at various times in our lives. And we talk about all the upper and lower conditions, the pelvic and anorectal disorders, including pelvic pain. And um, we go into pediatrics. We talk about the role of diet. We have a great GI dietitian who we talk with, as well as GI health psychologists. So we really try to cover all the different aspects of these conditions. Terrific. Well, I wish you every success with the book. I'll have everything in the show notes so people can check that out. Dr. Drossman, Judy said she just noticed that you have stool on your stool. <laughs> you mean the back of the room there? That's yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a little friend. So thank you guys so much. This was really wonderful. And thanks again for being an expert on the summit. You were, you were absolutely terrific. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow when my guest will be another summit expert to answer your questions, Dr. Jessica Krant. Take care. Thank you so much, Dr. Drossman and Johanna. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.